the National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. Yeah. Look. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Alan Frenchel Williams slips through, here's a shot, and it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself! See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. So Ben, we're recording this on Tuesday. It's election day in Virginia and a bunch of places. Should we just do two versions? So like one to use if Terry wins... One if Yunkin wins so that we can be sort of like smug and self-righteous no matter what. <laughs> yeah. I mean, or two versions, the exit poll version uh, and then the final poll Then the version. results that yeah, are yeah, totally different. The results version. Yeah. <sighs> I don't like every I love, election. Hate elections. Yeah. <laughs> they, they all feel like uh, existential now. That's the problem. Even, they really even off-year Virginia gubernatorial elections feel like the future of democracy. All right. We'll try to focus our brains on the globe today uh, because we have big news coming out of the Climate Change Summit that's happening uh, in Glasgow right now as we speak and about the G20 that just happened. We'll have the latest fallout from the coup in Sudan. A Gitmo detainee details CIA torture in court for the first time. We'll do a section about morally bankrupt billionaires in Saudi Arabia. Stay tuned for that. It's a lot of fun. The skeptical take on Havana syndrome, real housewives of the Gulf. Uh, Facebook unintentionally makes us laugh. And then we dive into the JFK assassination conspiracy theories. Uh, then our guest today is former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. He joins to talk about climate change, Australian politics, and how a Chinese real estate company could impact the global economy. Good stuff. We just recorded that with him. He's always great, very fun to talk yeah. to. Uh, ben, do not miss another great episode of Offline. This week, John Favreau talks with Monica Lewinsky about being patient zero in the rise of just brutal public internet shaming. It is a great conversation. She is so smart and thoughtful. Uh, I really just can't recommend it enough. Already listened, you know? I mean, actually, like, John may have really stumbled on something with that that dropping Sunday morning thing. Yeah, no, I, I, because, I took the like, dog for a walk. I, yeah, and, I like went for a run, like, you know, threw it on. Yeah, it felt like I was with friends. Uh, also, uh, if the Crooked fans in your life want holiday gifts, we have new merch, crooked.com slash store. This week, we dropped some gifts for your pets, toys, accessories, and more. So, be doing that. Okay, then, there is a huge group of world leaders in Glasgow, Scotland. One last chance for me to get that name wrong. Glasgow. They're talking about climate change. Um, you're going to go there pretty soon. You're leaving later this week. Let's start with the bad news about what's come out. So uh, as you asked, you know, the Prime Minister Rudd, neither Xi Jinping nor Vladimir Putin are attending in person. That's not good. China and Russia are the first and fourth biggest emitters of carbon dioxide by country. Would prefer them to be there. Uh, also not great that the general scientific consensus is that the world needs to limit the amount of that the planet warms to 1.5 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. So far, we have warmed the planet by 1.1 degrees Celsius. But the emissions targets, the pledges from various countries that have been made, don't get close to achieving that 1.5 goal. Uh, in some cases, most cases, really, I think they're only pledges and not actual policies or laws. So that's the downside of what's happening so yeah, far. Yeah, bummer. Very quick roundup of some of the good news. 
Uh, all the G20 countries finally acknowledge that we have to hit that 1.5 Celsius target. That actually is a big deal and gets everyone, you know, rowing the same direction. India surprised a lot of people by announcing that they would get to net zero carbon emissions by 2070 and that by 2030, half of India's electricity will be from renewable sources. So that's great. More than 80 countries pledged to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030. Scientists believe that methane is responsible for nearly one-third of global warming to date. So getting rid of that would be a big deal. So, Ben, that's just a few of like the many pledges and side deals and you know conversations that are happening at this conference. There's more about financial support for developing countries, agreements to stop deforestation, right? Everybody's trying to do this while not creating some massive economic impact on their citizens that leads to another yellow vest protest style uh, you know, problem in Europe. Um, I find myself sympathizing with the leaders who are inside the summit, uh, just trying to move the ball forward painfully and get stuff done. I find myself sympathizing with the activists outside who are furious that not enough is getting accomplished this week. What do you make of the event so far? Like, how, how are you feeling on your sort of like climate dread, uh, you know, thermometer? I mean, it they are lacking the kind of big new sets of announcements that kind of felt like dominoes on the way into Paris, you know? So, like, there, there just wasn't the same momentum leading into this thing. Um, but to your point, that, you know, they're tackling some of the structural aspects of the climate challenge. Methane in particular, the U.S. has clearly been focused on, and that's a very welcome uh, announcement because this is one of the areas where you have to kind of focus collectively on how do we just get rid of this And stuff. it's like, yeah. it's so achievable. Yeah. It's like plumbing. You can yeah. tighten up the, the hose or top pipe. Yeah, and 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 they really, this is one of those insane things where we were beginning to do this at the end of the bomb years, and then Trump just you know rolled that back, and then everybody lets yeah, their foot off the gas around the world, uh, and, and so that's a positive. There was an announcement around ending deforestation by 2030, and, and to me, this encapsulates in miniature the whole problem slash potential of this summit. Right on the one hand, you really do feel like everybody, with the exception of most of the Republican Party like gets it right. Like every, at least feels compelled to make commitments and certainly to be moving in this direction. Right, like and, green parties are rising. Yeah, like exactly. concern about climate's rising, and all these polls that Pew did around the world. Yeah, it, it, you know, and 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 so something like saying we're going to end deforestation by 2030 is like important, but. Like, do we have 10 years <laughs> to cut down the Amazon and, you know, no, and, and, it could be and, irreversible. Yeah, yeah. So so it's kind of like this. It, it, what's 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 so difficult about judging it is that we're beginning to really fill in some of the details and make some more progress off of what the foundation was in Paris. But the time is just not there, you know, mm -hmm. and so it's this kind of race against the clock. And I don't think any scientist, you know, believes that we are moving with enough speed to catch up with that clock, but we're moving, you yeah. know, and, and, and that's, you know, that's part of the complexity of this whole thing. And I think one of the challenges for activists is going to have to be, look, you're not going to get everything you want at the, at the summit, but that's all the more reason to just kind of hold people's feet to the fire so that these commitments, because you're hearing a lot of commitments, you know, we we'll do this by 2030 and this by 2050 and, and this by 2070, it, right? It can be a wash but in what numbers. are the, what is underneath that? What is going to actually get us there? The basic philosophy that you guys have talked about in PSA, we've talked about is that if there's enough momentum behind transitioning, that, that, that the global economy will just kind of, re, you know, course correct in that direction. Clean energy will take the place of fossil fuels. 
but the question is, as that is happening, because that clearly is happening, how are you just getting rid of <laughs> the dirty stuff faster? Mm-hmm. And how are you saving things like the Amazon faster? You know, yeah. and and we're not going to know the answer to that, I think, at the end of Glasgow. Yeah, there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle. Um, uh, credit to our British friends for making a full court press here, bringing out the big guns. They got David Attenborough speaking. They Love got the guy. Queen yeah. delivering a message. Boris Johnson found religion on climate change over the past decade or so. He was kind of an asshole about it for a long time. Uh, Biden apologized for Trump's decision to pull out of Paris. Ben, putting on your uh, crass political hack hat. Do you think that's going to be on Fox News nonstop for the next three years or are we past this apology tour idiocy? I think we're kind of past it. It's kind of funny, like seeing him do it and wasn't that big a deal. Yeah, no one seemed <laughs> you know, to care. Like, like no one seemed to care. And look, of all the insane stuff Trump did, you can lose sight of the fact that like Republican climate denialism is going to be one of the things that looks just the strangest and most reckless and sadistic yeah. with time. Next like the vaccine. Yeah. Like him standing up there and saying he cares about Pittsburgh, not Paris is kind of hackish announcement. So, I, you know, I, I think, you know, that that shows that things have changed. Right. Like just going to a climate change summit was once like controversial in this country. Right. N- nobody's really questioning that anymore. You know, even mm-hmm. Republicans who like don't even fully acknowledge the reality of climate change, they're not putting up much of a fight because they know that, particularly demographically to young people, like this is issue one, you totally. know? And, and you can kind of laugh at David Attenborough and all these people, but that's- No, an, I'm not laughing. I love David Attenborough. No, yeah, not you. I would never say that, but you. Thank you. I know you, you like I me watch share all these a, a passion for planet Earth and all the rest of it, but the, there's something positive about the, like, like just culturally- politicians can't evade at least trying to look like they care about this. You know, like even a Boris Johnson is talking about it's one minute to midnight. Mm-hmm. I do think there's a positive collective pressure from voters, first and foremost, but then activists and even like cultural figures totally. just saying like, hey, this is the thing you guys can't get wrong. Yeah, this matters. Yeah. This matters to all of us. Um, so the COP26 climate summit came right after the G20 summit in Rome. A lot of summits. Uh, some big takeaways I saw from the G20. Uh, Tony Blinken, Secretary of State, met with his Chinese counterpart for about an hour to prepare for this virtual summit between Biden and Xi Jinping uh, later this year. As we mentioned, Xi Jinping is not getting on planes anymore. I, I guess he needs like a, a jab and a Xanax to like get him going. We'll, we'll see what happens <laughs> yeah. here. Um, everyone, everybody at this at the G20 tried to smooth over uh, tensions with Turkey and President Erdogan. Seems like they've kind of papered over it, but none of the underlying issues are really resolved. The French are still pissed at the UK over fishing rights. The French are also pissed at Australia over the nuclear submarine deal with the US that we've talked about a thousand times. This was the big thing, I think, Ben. More than 130 countries agreed to set a minimum corporate tax rate of 15% so we can hopefully stop the practice of multinational corporations pretending that they're incorporated in like Ireland or whatever to create a tax shelter and not pay taxes. Um, Leaders also pledged to vaccinate 70% of the world's population against COVID-19 by mid-22. Biden hung out with the Pope for like 90 minutes, which I'm sure was hugely important to him personally. Uh, what, what do you think? What do you make of the G20? Like the, the corporate minimum tax seems like a big deal. Anything else worth highlighting that came out of this? I think on that one, like, you know, this has been kind of something that has been building over the course of the year. Um, they talked about it at the G7. Then they went and tried to get other countries to sign up to it. And I think they de- they deserve some credit on this Yeah, I thing. do too. Like they... they you know, this is a big deal. Like, you know, the, the the inequality in the world is fueling a lot of the grievance that you see in politics everywhere. It's obviously just economically unfair. You got people, you know, tax cheats and tax havens. And, and they do seem to be using the architecture of, you know, the G7, the G20, these international institutions to just 
methodically try to establish this kind of norm of Mm -hmm. a global minimum tax and then get enough people invested in it that it has some meaning. So, you know, there's more work to be done there. But I, I think it the discipline they showed on this, you know, clearly is is bearing some some result. Um, yeah, you did see the hangover. I mean, you talk about the apology tour, like he, he kind of had to make nice. You know, told Macron that yeah. it was clumsy. You know, um, I think that was necessary, right? Yeah, uh, a little hat in hand. Yeah, yeah you know, and, and um, uh, but you know, it wasn't again the. Ch- Xi Jinping wasn't there. Putin wasn't there. You know, I mean, it it used to be, a, uh, you know, having gone to like eight G20s, one of the hi- hi- highlights, not because it was fun, but in terms of consequence was usually there's a big meeting between the U.S. president and the mm-hmm. Chinese president. Usually you see Putin there and there's some drama around that. So there was a little less, you know, torqued up because that was yeah. absent. You know, the Pope thing was interesting to watch that, you know, that is... Um, you know, I remember th- that's a singular experience of being president, you know, like to, to go visit the Pope. And and I think it highlighted again that that Pope Francis, I think Biden said something along the lines of like, this man is every reason why I'm a Catholic, which I thought was a powerful statement about, you know, Francis representing social justice. And, and, and you, you know, sometimes you can forget he's there, you know, in this kind of pretty bleak political landscape out there. So hopefully yeah. got some moral support. I can't help but mention that the biggest project we did with them was the cube opening. So I hope Pope Francis yeah, put yeah. a little, uh, little do, pressure, do a little lobbying. moral suasion there on uh, Joe Biden to kind like of make that. life a little better for the Cuban people. But but yeah, it was it was a it seemed like a positive outcome, but it also seemed uh, devoid of some of the drama that that sometimes plays out. In part because not all leaders were there, and yeah. and the climate summit was a, a, a the bigger of the summits. Yeah, the prickly customers weren't there. Um, since we're talking about an event in Italy, the G20, we should mention that Italy's Senate uh, recently voted down a bill that would have made uh, violence against LGBT and disabled people and misogyny a hate crime. So we're talking about Italian politics. The proposal came after a series of attacks on LGBT people and a rise in hate crimes that a lot of activists in Italy think uh, has linked to an increased popularity of Matteo Salvini's far-right League Party. Uh, Unfortunately, the Vatican... Pope Francis, hope you're listening, uh, has been an impediment to progress here on on trying to you know, label these attacks against uh, gays and lesbians as hate crimes. So thanks for hosting the summit, Italy. Thanks for doing the fun little uh, coin toss into the Trevi Fountain with all the world leaders. But, you know, maybe get your own shit together. Yeah. Well, and this is, I mean, like there's been this uh, troubling stigmatization of, of the LGBT community. You know, Putin has made them a target. And then you've seen, you know, Orban recently trying to make them a target in Hungary. This is kind of spreading around the European far right, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, but troublingly at, at times spilling over into some of the kind of Christian right parties that, that may not normally be on the far right. Um, so it's something that requires vigilance, really. It just re- you know, requires people standing up and expressing solidarity against that. I think in terms of the Vatican, this is one of those areas where, you know, Francis you know, has not been exactly a progressive on these issues, but no. he has been a little bit ahead of the Vatican bureaucracy on this one, and just in terms of how he talks about it. Um, but it's a reminder that even even the Pope doesn't doesn't have control over um, everything in in uh, his own bureauc- bureaucracy, and and uh, and yeah, like that that requires, I think. Uh, uh, like a continued, uh, you know, you can get complacent because there have been so many gains um, for LGBT people yeah. in this country and other places. But, you, you know, you, you can't take your eye off the uglier 
dynamic that's playing out in, in, yeah. in a lot of spaces. And how it folds into these far-right parties. Um, let's do an update from Sudan. So about a week ago, the Sudanese military staged a coup and took over the country. Since that time, there have been major demonstrations all across Sudan. Uh, the government has repeatedly cut phone and internet service, but despite that, tons of videos and photos of the protests are, are getting out anyway. Uh, it's pretty amazing, the courage that's being shown. There's also some really scary reports that at least a dozen protesters have been killed. I've seen over 100 wounded uh, the U.S., as we discussed last week, has condemned the coup. Uh, the U.S. has held up $700 million in aid to Sudan and has been talking with Egypt and UAE, uh, the UAE, to try to push them to play a helpful role <laughs> in resolving what's happened. Um, this is an interesting anecdote here, Ben. There was a, a senior Israeli official quoted anonymously in Israel's biggest free newspaper. And this person was criticizing the U.S. response to the coup and basically arguing that, you know, although democracy is good in theory, the Sudanese military is more likely to cut deals with the U.S., cut deals with Israel and improve ties. So therefore, the U.S. should just pipe down about this coup being bad and just kind of back it. I do think that speaks to, you know, kind of a, a post-Arab Spring, post-Abraham Accords mindset that you know, prioritizes stability with bad actors maybe over the messiness of democracy that might make unwinding this whole process even harder. Uh, the UN, South Sudan, a lot of others are trying to broker talks, find some sort of resolution. How are you feeling about the odds of this thing getting resolved peacefully, given what we've seen over the last week? I don't feel very good about it. And, you know, it, I, I came back a couple times when this uh, issue came up to the Saudis and the Emiratis and the Egyptians who have a lot of sway with the Sudanese military. And we talked last week about the Abraham Accords and how it kind of plays into this idea that that the pathway to stability is through these kind of military regimes. You know, you either have the royal families in the Gulf or the military governments in places like Egypt and Sudan. And and, and the reason I was saying that is because I'd seen the movie before in Egypt, you know? Yep. And, and here, you know, what's... What's e even more like remarkable in a way is that in Egypt you had a Muslim Brotherhood led, led government. Um, here you weren't even through the transition. It was like it was like this kind of collection of people got together and were like, well, you know, we're, we're just more comfortable with the 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 military government there. And and obviously the military, the Sudanese military itself was the the primary actor here. But you have the that Israeli official kind of saying the quiet part out loud, mm -hmm. and I think we we just have to reckon with this that like like do do the why would the world not take the lesson from us when we're, you know, when we're so close to all these governments that are involved in 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 the region and in the Abraham Accords and and then they you you see quotes like that and you see the actions of these governments and you know, where's the U.S. on democracy? Yeah, it just and, feels like history is doomed to repeat itself, right? I mean, yeah. we, we backed all these autocrats in, in Iraq and, you know, Egypt and countless other places that led to these popular uprisings, which led to instability. I mean, it, it's a cycle. There, and there's always some reason, right? Yeah. They, you know, ter security. terrorism, yeah. security, stability. Oil. Oil, Abraham Accords. Like, there's always some issue other than democracy that that justifies kind of if not, because we're not supporting this, I'm not suggesting we are, but the the these governments that we're close to are, you know, yeah. and I'm glad to see that we're talking to the Emiratis and the Egyptians about this. I think that the only thing that will make a difference is if people keep protesting, yeah. you know, yeah. and and if there's if there's just a sense that, that this is just not going to 
to sit with the public there. Um, that's hard. It's a lot to ask of people, you know, um, fatigue and, and people have lives and people have basic needs and, and there's the risk of, uh, of a crackdown. Um, but really it's the, these internal pressures, they don't just disappear because you have a coup. Uh, and, and, and my hope is that the combination of, of U.S. diplomacy and other countries and public pressure from within kind of at least keeps some embers burning for democracy that can then hopefully lead to something like what the transition was supposed to be. Yeah, fingers crossed. Um, let, let's stay in the Horn of Africa for a bit um, and do a quick update on the civil war in Ethiopia. So it's been hard to get reports out of Ethiopia generally because of all the media blackouts and everything else. But there has been some reporting this week that the Tigray People's Liberation Front or TPLF uh, and another insurgent group said that they had captured back significant territory from the government. Remember, those are the two groups fighting. The Ethiopian government has been attacking the northern Tigray region uh, in the TPLF that's up there. On Sunday, uh, the Ethiopian prime minister, Abiy Ahmed, posted a message on his Facebook page calling on people to, quote, destroy and bury the terrorist TPLF. So that was chilling. He also accused them of executing 100 young people in one of those captured towns uh, that we were talking about earlier. And then just before we started taping, there were new reports that the Ethiopian government has declared a state of emergency and called on citizens to pick up arms and prepare to defend the capital. So very scary stuff. Hard to know exactly what's going on. You know, the the, the latter part I was just reading about, the um, the call to pick up arms was in a New York Times report, like datelined out of Kenya. So I'm not sure how close they are to the action. Um, so we're going to try to keep making sense of this, but also how the hell does Facebook allow the prime minister to post, destroy and bury the terrorist TPLF? Like, how is that not a violation of their terms? It's a good question, Tommy. Yeah. Okay. And that's not in the metaverse. That's here that in the fucking universe. Yeah. You know, that's here in the fucking universe. I mean, I, one thing that people need to, you know, keep in mind too, that the TPLF, you know, if you, if you're looking in the newspaper and you just see the kind of little box of the map and then this little region up there. These are the guys that like used to run the country, yeah. you know. So like I I I I always kind of wondered like maybe they'll win this war, you know, and because th- it's not just like this is he's trying to crush some small province and settle some some small dispute. These are the people that they they know what they're doing here, and it looks like the momentum is with them. Now, if they end up overrunning Addis, the capital of Ethiopia. And there's bloodletting. I don't know what the future of Ethiopia looks like. I mean, it's just civil war, yeah. like mass atrocities looks in protracted. both directions, protracted, like famine. I mean, this is an utter catastrophe if it continues like this. Um, and, and really, the only solution to avert that is some kind of diplomatic ceasefire negotiation. Like, yeah. like nobody's going to quote unquote win this, you know, or even if they do win, th- that victory is going to be followed by bloodletting and international isolation and, and humanitarian crisis. So the looking at this now, it looks like the momentum is with the TPLF, but that doesn't change the fundamental equation that absent this getting into some negotiation, like, it's just going to get worse for the people there. Yeah. I feel like every day we talk about this, it's just going to get worse. And there's got to be some real pressure on the Ethiopian government in particular to, to get a ceasefire. And, and Biden did some of the things you talked about, getting rid of those trade preferences. Yep. And, you know, so they're trying. Um, they, I think it's just going to take a lot of countries, not just yes. the U.S., like just, you know, everybody kind of coming in and saying, you know, this has got to stop. Yes. Agreed. 
Um, let's talk about the prison at Guantanamo Bay for a minute, because last week, uh, an eight-member jury in the military commission trial made up of officers in the U.S. military heard testimony from a guy named Majid Khan, who he grew up in the suburbs of Maryland before becoming an al-Qaeda courier. These are facts. Uh, in 2012, Khan pleaded guilty to terrorism charges, including delivering $50,000 from al-Qaeda to an extremist group in Southeast Asia, and that money was then used to fund the bombing of a hotel uh, in Indonesia. The hearing uh, was to determine Khan's sentence, uh, but what made it remarkable is that this was the first time an individual who had been tortured by the U.S. government at CIA black sites had testified publicly. Khan spoke for two hours about being waterboarded uh, and about the sexual and psychological abuse and torture he endured in U.S. custody. At one point, he said, quote, the more I cooperated, the more I was tortured. Uh, and he just started making stuff up to try to stop this torture from happening. So it's a good reminder that torture does not work. So on Sunday, this jury issued its sentence. Now, the lowest possible sentence they could issue given the framework provided to them was 26 years. But then seven of the eight jurors uh, sent along a letter calling the torture a stain on the moral fiber of America and a source of shame for the U.S. government. It was sort of a, a clemency letter. So you can thank the Bush administration, Ben, for these programs existing in the first place. Thank President Obama for banning them in 2009. Um, but this is the first kind of like public reckoning we've really seen in, in a court in a long time. Khan has cut a deal with prosecutors that should end his sentence in 2025 at the latest. But I think the broader question is if and whether this clemency letter and the decision overall might impact future military commission cases for Gitmo detainees. So pretty big news. It is. And man, this is like just awful stuff to Horrifying. read. And, 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 Horrifying. And we've seen versions of this, right, in, in news stories in in some of the accounts of uh, Gitmo detainees who've been you know repatriated to other countries and then they're interviewed, and, and it's always worse than like you even imagined. Um, and I think that uh, look, number one, the excesses of those early years of the war on terror are astonishingly horrific and like a horrible chapter in our history. These were like literally authorized tactics, mm -hmm. you know, um, and part of and that leads to the question of, you know, I often wonder, like, could we or should we have done more in the Obama years to hold people to account, to to be more transparent about this? You know, the, the legal argument that ultimately Obama was persuaded by is if if like the leadership of the Bush administration literally signed off on these tactics, prosecuting the people who carried them out, like in the prison cells was, you know, a difficult precedent to set because you're you're holding people accountable for the orders they were following, which is obviously always a complicated thing. But when you read this, the the sadism and, and excess of it yep. makes you question that decision again. Truly sadism. Um, and, and I do think Look, it's shameful that we've kind of moved on. Gitmo's still open. What what the hell is it doing there? What, like, you know, they, everybody got to dunk on Obama for not being able to close it because Congress tied his hands and then Trump obviously wasn't doing it. How long are we going to keep this prison where we tortured all these people and it's a symbol for all this to the rest of the world open? We may have moved on as most Americans, but like, I tell you, the rest of the world like made some serious decisions about what kind of superpower America was based on these things. And we've not reckoned with it. And so I think that one of the things that's going to happen, have to happen at some point and probably won't, but is some kind of like, 
almost like truth commission. Like there has to be a public accounting of what happened. Um, you know, in part as an accountability measure, but in part to make sure it never happens again. You know, I mean, I just, what are we doing to learn from this? We're just looking away from it. I mean, that's my impression. Yeah, and just wrapping these, these, you know, Gitmo detainees, guilty or not, in this sort of like Kafka-esque, you know, bureaucratic nightmare where they can't even have a trial for decades. This was 20 years ago. Yeah. I mean, like, not you know, this is, we just we passed the 9-11 anniversary of 20 years. I mean, how long... How like this is insane. Like like th- these people have been in this legal morass. Um, I, it just shows you how how much we lost our way there. You yeah, know, and, uh, and it shows you again like Bush, <laughs> like Trump rightly you know attracts a lot of attention. Like the, the Bush years, especially that first Bush term. Um, yeah, pretty bad. Not a high point. Not a high point. I mean, he hangs out with Ellen and Jerry Jones's box, and that's great. <laughs> oh, but gosh. like this guy, you know, yeah, let's bad. not forget what happened. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. They respond within 72 hours after an emergency strikes, staying as long as needed. Refugee and displaced families are amazingly resilient, but in places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Lebanon, displaced families are experiencing adverse winter weather on top of war, hunger, and displacement. Many refugee and displacement camps are unable to withstand extreme weather conditions, especially as climate conflict and economic turmoil have driven up food prices, destroyed infrastructure, and driven millions of people from their homes. Donations help the IRC provide families with the resources they need to recover and rebuild, including winter items, emergency food, shelter, fuel, medicine, blankets, and cash assistance. Uh, I have to say, the IRC is an amazing organization. They do heroic work all over the globe. And unfortunately, it has never been more important and needed. Uh, If you are thinking about giving, please consider giving to the IRC. And if you're going to give at the end of the year, uh, maybe move that up because they could use your help now. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh, man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. I, I, listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. 
If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Speaking of people who lost their way, let's shame some people um, who visited Saudi Arabia. So oh, that's that's fun. Every year, Saudi Arabia's uh, sovereign wealth fund hosts this big conference. It's called Davos in the Desert. That's what the cool kids say. Davos in the Desert. Uh, it attracts lots of politicians. Boy, that and, sounds like oh, a, it's, yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, uh, politicians and CEOs who desperately want Saudi investment dollars show up to this thing, and they genuflect before a sadist. Um, in twenty eighteen. Davos in the desert came only 20 days after the Saudi government executed a U.S.-based journalist named Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. You've heard us talk about that many times. That horrific murder of a journalist caused many but not all of the big name uh, participants in the Davos in the desert conference that year to drop out. Big shots at J.P. Morgan, SoftBank, Goldman Sachs, Uber, Ford, leaders at the IMF, World Bank, other governments, they all canceled. This year's Davos in the Desert was last week, and an excellent NPR reporter named David Gura uh, tweeted out a thread of all the morally bankrupt business vampires who came crawling back to suckle at the uh, the Saudi spigot. So here's a few names that are worth knowing. This guy, Ray Dalio, a big investor, CEOs of BlackRock, Blackstone, Goldman Sachs. The insufferably named Lady Lynn Forrester de Rothschild is back. This is a person who took it upon herself to defend capitalism after the financial crisis. Yeah. And she goes to the Saudi government. Uh, the U.S. government sent the deputy secretary of commerce. That's like, I don't know. That, frankly, that's like kind of insulting to the Saudis. So like, that's <laughs> yeah. fine. Um, <laughs> the, the former Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin showed up. He gave a speech. Uh, Remember Steve, uh, Steve Mnuchin's raising a big investment fund with mostly Gulf money. Yep. CEO of Carnival Cruises was there. Former Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper was there. Journalists from CNN, Foreign Policy, and Euronews moderated panels. I don't know how you could talk get talked into that. Um, check out David's full Twitter thread if you want to see all the names. Then anyone you want to single out in name and shame. I just want to quickly point out, these are mostly billionaires. You know, these are people who, if they never got another dollar from the Saudi government, would still be on private jets and houses in the Hamptons and et cetera. Like, I'm not that I would excuse it if they were poor, but it just, I think, does speak to how utterly depraved you have to be to show up at this thing. I mean, how how much is enough for these people? Like, to your point about the Marty being billionaires, like, you know, like, this is so much the problem in the world today is that, like, if you are always going to choose like profit over any other value whatsoever, there are always going to be Mohammed bin Salmans who chop up journalists and and invade their neighbors and cause humanitarian crises and and kidnap <laughs> prime ministers of other countries. I mean, the, 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 this guy's we never even sheet. mentioned that one. He yeah. kidnapped the prime minister. <laughs> <of London. laughs> this guy's rap sheet is so long, and these guys go over there and suck up to him, and and, and you know shame on these people like they. They're also the kind of people that probably sit at their book parties in in the Upper East Side and of New York and, and D.C. and lament the challenges to democracy. You are the problem. Absolutely. Like you are the reason there's a problem with democracy. If there weren't people that went over and groveled before autocrats who chop up journalists, maybe things would be looking a little better for democracy. Because guess who else is over there? 
all the Trump people, the people, the very same people that, you know, you say, well, you know, gosh, this is such a problem that we need to save democracy in America. Well, guess where they like, what happened to that crew? They're all like becoming billionaires themselves over there at the same conference at the Davos in the desert. It's not as if the first Davos wasn't bad enough, <laughs> and, and, you know, sucking up to a sociopath. Yeah. L- Lady Lynn Forrester de Rothschild was a huge uh, Bill and Hillary Clinton supporter. Oh, yeah, yeah. Was so pissed that the uh, Clinton lost to Obama in the primary that she switched over to support McCain and then other Republicans. But like, again, this <laughs> during the- it really cost the, us a lot of votes. After the financial the, crisis. We lost to Lady de Lynn de well, after Davos. The fi- after the yeah. financial crisis, she decided that Occupy Wall Street was like really awful and that she needed to defend capitalism. One way you could defend capitalism is not by trying to get money from homicidal maniacs. Like show the world that there's a line, that capitalism can be okay with some sort of framework and boundaries. But when you're like groveling to Mohammed bin Salman, you know, Occupy Wall Street seems pretty reasonable. Well, the other thing that these people like to talk about is like how capitalism allows people to come up from yeah, the bootstraps poverty, yeah, yeah. And, and and fosters competition. What, what Where in that equation does... A sociopath with a trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund. What, what, is that fair competition? Yeah. Because he happens to have some what dirt. What straps? Yeah, yeah, like with oil in it that, that, that allows him to put on. I mean, I, I just, uh, this should get more attention. It's right? gross. And, and, and because like the, these are the, the kinds of things that like we're sitting in this country debating, you know, the school curriculum in Loudoun County. This is what's actually happening in the world. Like, this is the story of how people are getting screwed and why democracy is in recession and why, by the way, a lot of people feel grievances against the elite and the establishment. And and yet, like, this is not what we're talking about, you know? It's just Um, the worst. Yeah. The worst. And by the way, because if Democrats were smart, right, like... You you would be going after of course Mnuchin like like what would Republicans be doing if the roles were reversed and you could point to the fact that like all these senior Republican types are going over there and bootlicking the Saudis to to line their pockets for their corrupt funds the reason Democrats can't do it is because too many of our own donors and people go to the same shit yeah. and do the same stuff so you know you don't hear word one about it nope nope. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to run an ad about Steve Mnuchin, like sitting over there? Sorry, you're looking. It would be nice. Go on. So I'll stop. I hear you. I hear you. Uh, okay. So here's another issue that's um, annoying. Uh, a report issued by the Director of National Intelligence says about the lab leak theory and COVID-19 origin says we still don't know conclusively whether COVID came from natural animal to human transmission or some sort of leak from an, a lab. So... Thanks for that one. (laughs) Multi-billion dollar (laughs) intelligence agencies. Yeah. Yeah. It's good stuff. There we go. I mean, you know, sometimes they don't have the answer. (laughs) Sometimes it's just like, we just don't know, you know. Uh, Something tells me on the outline that's not the last issue where that might be the case. No. Okay. Here's another mystery (laughs) that no one seems to be able to solve then. Uh, Havana syndrome. So Havana syndrome, we've talked about it before on the show. It's this mysterious, sometimes debilitating ailment that was first reported in Cuba back in 2016, 2017. Today, there have been over 200 reported cases among American government officials in places around the world, including Washington, D.C. There have also been people in foreign governments who've said they had symptoms. Some in the U.S. government, especially the intelligence community, have settled on a theory that Havana syndrome is the result of an attack of some sort, most likely by the Russians. Uh, Congress passed a law to provide compensation to the victims of Havana syndrome. But there are also many people who don't believe that there is one thing 
causing Havana syndrome, and they believe that it is certainly not an attack or certainly not proven to be an attack. So we've talked about you know this issue before, but we wanted to outline the skeptical case because there have been some you know really hard pushback, especially on Twitter, very caustic in some cases, to recent reporting about Havana syndrome that I think is worth airing. So scientists in particular have pushed back on the idea that a sonic weapon or a microwave weapon could create the kind of brain injuries that we're talking about, or that it could somehow like penetrate the brain and injure someone without harming surrounding tissue. Um, some scientists believe the, the most likely explanation is what's called a mass psychogenic illness, which is when people get sick because they think they were exposed to something. Um, you know, these same scientists point out the fact that you know, there was this sound that was initially thought to be a sonic weapon attack that turned out to be really loud type of cricket. Now, that doesn't mean like the victims aren't suffering real symptoms, but it just means the cause is a mix of factors. One neurologist quoted in this one times piece uh, referred to the illness as being like depression or a migraine. They happen in that gray area where the mind and the brain intersect. So Ben, the, the New Republic had a good piece about why I think it's important to, to pump the brakes a bit here. Um, Trump's former defense secretary called Havana syndrome an act of war. The House Foreign Affairs Committee is working on sanctions. The Trump administration pulled everybody out of Cuba years ago, just blaming the Cubans for what happened. No one, I think, nobody thinks, that's thinks the case that now. anymore. Yeah. Marco Rubio accused skeptics of being um, influence agents paid by foreign governments. So again, obviously, I don't know what happened. I don't want to like upset any victims or doubt their suffering, but I do think this this admonition to everybody to say, hey, stop saying this is some sort of Russian attack or else there's going to be a response is probably well taken. Well, Dr. Rubio begs to differ. Tommy. Dr. Rubio uh, thinks I'm a noted I'm a, neurologist. Yeah. You know, uh, I, yeah, look, I, red scare here. I think it's right to balance this with skepticism in the sense that clearly there are some people that that were injured, right? Like, you know, the, then there's a large, larger pool of people that that may not have been right, and, right. and and there's two things that I would just highlight from the skepticism case, positing that I do think something happened to some people, and that the Russians are the most likely culprit. But the, the, one is I write about this in After the Fall, my book. I learned of this for the first time when I was in Cuba um, in July of 2017. I saw a friend from the embassy. He's like, "Yeah, these weird things are happening," and and then like a few days later, I got violently ill. I had I was sick to my stomach. I had like ferocious headache. Think of your food poisoning and hangover all rolled into one and it lasted like two days. And it was probably food poisoning, right? But there was like this part of me that was kind of like, mm -hmm. well, I'm staying in a government hotel and right. the Russians don't like me. And, 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 and I could in my worst moments lying there <laughs> sweating this out, talk myself into like, hey, did something just happen to me? You know? And 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 that's not to impugn people. It's just that when you you hear that there's bad things happening to people and who are serving in diplomatic posts and that these are the symptoms like headaches and you know vertigo type symptoms, you get those symptoms and you might think totally. that that's that, right? So that's one thing that's the worst, bears in mind. And the worst part of get, getting sick is when you don't know what it when is. When you don't know what it is. You're freaking out. You're yeah. WebMDing and everything says you have cancer or AIDS and you're terrified. Yeah. And you're in a place like Cuba where like you can get food poisoning or, you know, and, and this has happened obviously in a lot of places around the world. I think the second thing that's right to tap the brakes is like the Russia, this is the same thing that happened in, in all the Russia stuff, the Russia investigation stuff is that there's a core of like very true concerns 
that doesn't mean that we have to like hang every ornament on the tree and say it's Russia and you know like let's establish what we know and and try to work out from there what to do about it. You you can feel like what what's so interesting about Rubio is that the same guy who was using this to like close our embassy in in Havana mm-hmm. a few years ago is now like using this as part of his anti-Russia politics. It, right. that, that, that doesn't seem like someone who's being informed by like the science of this. No, he's pathologically stupid. Yeah. Well, there's that too. It's a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, look, I, I think you're knows good. I, I don't want anyone listening who may have suffered from this or know yes. someone who'd like to feel like we're doubting them. We are no, not. No, we're not. We're but not. I do think that if the, the U.S. government is going to respond, it should be based on real hard evidence. And it doesn't sound like anyone thinks we're there. Yeah. Um, ben, a few quicker things to sort of close out the show. This might be the dumbest thing I've heard in a long time, and I barely understand it. It's so stupid. The Federal Election Commission has ruled that foreign donors can finance U.S. referendum campaigns. So current law says foreign nationals can't donate to U.S. candidates or political action committees. Makes sense to me. These idiots, the FEC now seem to think it's fine if some foreign corporation or some foreign billionaire finances like a ballot initiative in California, I think. Um, Here's an example of why it could be problematic. Axios mentioned this example. In Maine, there's a Canadian power company that is paying to promote a ballot initiative to get, I think, the state to pay for more power lines, right? That seems like a huge conflict of interest that should not be allowed. They tried to pass a bill to prevent that from happening. The governor vetoed it. the good news is that states can ban these kinds of donations, but like, what what the hell? This is insane. How, how is this happening? Yeah, I don't know how this is happening. And and like this reinforces, this is not like, you know, we had 15 years ago, like publicly financed elections in this country, you right? Remember McCain-Feingold? Like, yeah, yeah. And then Citizens United gets rid of that. And I think one of the underappreciated problems in our democracy is like all the sets of money flooding in politics, dark money flooding in politics, and foreign money flooding. Remember when Obama stood up in the State of the Union yes. and said there's going to be foreign funding for elections, and, and like Scalia's like, no, there won't. That's, That's so a offended. lie or something. Yeah. And it's like, it's well, and here debate. we are like 10 years later talking about like foreign corporations could finance self-interested referenda in American states. That is insane. The FEC should not approve this. They should replace the FEC commissioners who did. Like the, We need to turn the tide on just across the board, this, this kind of lack of regard for who's financing elections and campaigns and politics in this country. Run the most jingoistic campaign against us you possibly can. Accuse Democrats of accepting donations from, I don't know, name some boogeyman country. But yeah, we should ban this. Yeah. How is yeah. this possible? Yeah, this is crazy. Um, uh, another one. Last week, we talked about uh, Boston Celtics Center and former guest on the show, Anis Cantor, his criticism of the Chinese government for its policy in Tibet and for the genocide against the Uyghurs. That advocacy uh, uh, online did not go over well in Beijing. Streams of Celtics games are now blocked in all of China. Uh, well, Anis tripled down uh, over the weekend, <laughs> tweeting, the genocidal Chinese government and the insecure tyrant behind it all, Xi Jinping, must not be allowed to host the upcoming Winter Olympics. Say no to Beijing 2022. So this is a great story about Ennis just being like a full-throated advocate for human rights and a ballsy one at that. But also, this is, we're going to hear a lot more this. Of this is coming. Beijing so, 2022 boycott is, is coming. Is he getting minutes? I don't know. Because you're the, uh, like, I, because uh, I. I haven't watched this. Uh, yeah, like, he game. was kind of not getting minutes, and I, I was curious about that. But, like, he clearly is just, you know, there's like a a joy in his trolling uh, on this that 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 you know it doesn't feel like i mean he's saying things often that 
everybody knows to be true, that, but that certain people never say, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's kind of testing the limits of, of free speech, really. But I think you're right to home in on this one point, which is that, like, this Olympics question is not going away. Not going um, And it's very and, reasonable. And, and I don't see how the momentum doesn't build towards a boycott. You know, like, it's hard to see, um, given a lot of the, given the reality of what's happening to the Uyghurs and giving people standing up and expressing their views like this, um, it, it, it's going to be a hard case to make against the boycott absent China taking some corrective action, which there's about a 0% chance that they will. So I think this is going to be with us. Yeah, I think it's going to be with us too. I went to uh, ESPN to see if uh, how Ennis is doing in terms of minutes. It looks like he's averaging two points a game, maybe getting like five minutes. He's getting real, some run. Yeah, he's getting a run. The real upside here was uh, there was a video that just live played with Ennis Cantor and another teammate teaching Taco Fall how to swim. Uh, Taco Fall, for listeners who don't know, is I think 7-7. Seven, seven. So it's very funny. That's good. Watching That's good. him swim in the pool. Anyway, enough basketball from us. Uh, ben, the Bravo series, The Real Housewives, is coming to Dubai, the capital of the United Arab Emirates. Um, I wonder if the cast will include uh, Princess Latifa Al Maktoum, the Emir of Dubai's daughter. She was the one who tried to escape from Dubai in 2018 and then was kidnapped by some like commando unit when she was on a boat and forcibly returned to the country. Or maybe it will include some domestic workers who are trafficked to the UAE and now are treated as slave labor. I'm guessing there won't be any gay cast members since homosexuality is illegal and consensual sodomy can get you 10 years in prison in the UAE. Also, you can't drink alcohol, so what the fuck are they going to do? What is Bravo thinking? I mean, yeah, you're not going to have the rosé subplots here. Uh, Real Housewives Xinjiang. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean... What you've seen in the past is like a lot of money spent by the Emirates to almost subsidize some of this stuff. Like, in full disclosure, I'm an MSNBC contributor, but CNN, there were some stories recently about like they have a partnership with the Emirates really? to kind of promote the expo that they're hosting. Yeah. But in some of this is CNN just as journalistic partner for the expo. That's fine. Right. But then there's like all these stories and packages about come visit the Emirates because it has it. Or did you see the thing online of like the tour of that hotel suite that is like a the like in in, in I think it's in Dubai. Um, it's like gold leaf. Gold, yeah. Gold yeah, leaf. Everything. So they're, they're, they're selling this kind of luxury brand. Yes. You know? Yes. Um, that is like, you know, what's kind of sad about it, to be fair to the Emirates, is like it, it's kind of an American <laughs> Like it's like, like look how rich and successful yeah. these people are, and how pristine their lives are. Just don't pay attention to all the stuff happening over here. You know, awful. But awful. I hope I, I'm so glad you did what you did because it's like every time you see Dubai, Abu Dhabi, just remember all those other things you just talked about. Built you know? on slave labor. Yeah, <laughs> gay people can't live. They'll get thrown in jail. Critics of the government are ha- hounded. Yeah. There have been foreign, like, PhD students in prison because they didn't like the research they were doing. Yeah. So it has, like, the appearance of this kind of modern, almost progressive society. And then underneath the hood, it's not exactly what's happening. Bad idea, bravo. Um, ben, did you notice that Facebook changed its name last week to Meta? I noticed. Catch this. Yeah, uh, great rollout. Very successful rollout. <laughs> I watched a chunk of that event. You planned a few rollouts, Tommy. Did you ever have one that, that, that clung to like, quite a, like that? It landed, yeah. It was lots of, it was hours of just like painfully awkward hand talking. Um, 
Here's a funny story. So the BBC reported on the fact that meta sounds like the Hebrew word for dead. So Twitter <laughs> users in Israel have been having a lot of fun with that. There we go. I mean, like that, that's, uh, I mean, I, <laughs> it's too good. Do, you know what? You know what we may have figured out? What? It may be hell. Oh, that's yeah. like hell may actually be Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse. Oh, like yeah. Like if, if you're bad and you, you do bad things in life and you die, you may just float into some room with Mark Zuckerberg's apparition talking to you about how cool his new gadget is. It's like Poltergeist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's going yeah. to the TV. Yeah. Um, that's actually, mm, like, that's too real. So this BBC <laughs> yeah. story mentioned some past uh, uh, translation errors by companies. Here's a few favorites. Uh, when KFC went to China in the 1980s, their motto, finger licking good, was translated into Mandarin as eat your fingers off. <laughs> that was going. Rolls-Royce had to change the name of a car called the Silver Mist because in Germany, the name translated to silver excrement. Uh. like that one. Uh, Nokia's Lumia phone was a misfire in Spain because it translated to prostitute in some dialects. <laughs> and the Honda Fitta had to change its name because it translated to a vulgar name for vagina in Swedish. So corporate branding... It's getting dicey up here. There. I thought our pronunciations are bad. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you, can do, you can do a lot worse. You can do yeah. a lot worse. Uh, last topic before we get to Kevin Rudd. Uh, the Biden administration delayed. Can we get some spooky uh, sort of War of the Worlds sound underneath this, please? Thank you. Uh, right, the Biden administration <laughs> delayed the public release of thousands of documents that pertain to the 1963 assassination of President John F. Kennedy. So Biden's team cited delays in the declassification review process that were caused by the pandemic. Trump also delayed the release of these documents back in 2017. Uh, understandably, Ben, this has gotten a lot of people wondering about whether there's government cover up. Big chunks of the country already don't believe that Kennedy was killed by a lone gunman. It's not likely that there's a, a smoking gun file about to be released that says, hey, the CIA did it or whatever. But I do think scholars think there could be information about, you know, the government's efforts to stop organized crime or the CIA's failed covert actions uh, in Cuba trying to assassinate Castro or whether uh, Lee Harvey Oswald had ties to, you know, CIA-backed exiled groups. You got any theories on what might be in here or whether it's reasonable to say that all these years later, there could be some information that could actually be harmful to national security. This seems absurd to me. It seems totally absurd to me. Um, and and people always ask me, like, did you, like, figure out when you're in government? Like, you know, it's all, the two things people always ask about, are, like, Area 51 and the Kennedy mm -hmm. assassination. And the moon and, landing. And, and, and unfortunately, like, I had no... Mostly I, uh, uh, Emily Favreau. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I should have gone over and read the files. But... Um, Look, it's, it, the amount of time that's passed, it's insane to claim, you know, this is 60 years ago in a totally different context of a Cold War. All the people involved are dead. Like, I, I have no possible reason I can think of. Um, there's clearly some shit that went down in Mexico. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but just like who he was associating with. And, and a lot of theories were just they were embarrassed that they didn't, you know, roll up this guy given everybody he was associating with. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, I used to like have these crazy things with the Cubans when I would, was negotiating with the Cubans, particularly at the beginning, because they would always assert as if it was a fact, well, look, well, we know that, you know, uh, that Lee Harvey Oswald was working with these Cuban exile groups and that's, you know, and, and so it was always weird because they, they, you know, they, they, like, you got a guy, uh, you got sources? I was like, yeah, I was like, like you want to give me some information you here? Paper on this? Um, but, um, I, you know, I, I, 
the the serious point I make is that like not releasing this information like conspiracy theories are very destructive. I mean, like today, dude, totally. There are a bunch of fucking lunatics in Dallas, like waiting for JFK Jr. Literally to turn up at the spot of his father's assassination. Hundreds of people. Now that's because those people are insane and Facebook locks them in kind of strange echo chambers of conspiracy theory. But it's also kind of tied to this like, you know, paranoid mind that was fueled by the lack of transparency yes. around the JFK. So the point is that the national security people, of which you know I used to be one, make these arguments about the cost of the revelations of certain sources, methods, tactics, even if they're in the past. There is a cost to not being transparent. The, the cost is insane distrust of government and conspiracy theory. Yeah. And, and and just release everything already. Like, just put it all out. No redactions. Like, what 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 are we doing here? This is insane. Yeah, we we are giving. Look, we can make fun of the Who QAnon are we protecting? types. Who are we protecting? Giving them fodder. Yeah. And you know what? Like, Google CoinTelPro. There's a lot of reasons to mistrust the government. To think that we've been lied to. To think that there have been cover ups. I mean, you know, like the, the U.S. government's done a lot of terrible things uh over time and the only way to deal with it is some sort of disclosure transparency yeah. reconciliation i mean look i i will take them at their word that they need to do this declassification review that that covid slowed it down i do not take them i, I don't, don't, I don't why, believe though. for a second that the cia has real sources and methods yeah. concerns besides being worried about feeling embarrassed what are the statute of limitations on like i mean it just it, it boggles the mind to think that something in 1963 is still a sense of national security. And, and like all the people who live through this trauma will never see the truth. Yeah. Because they're all going to be dead by the time it's Yeah. Out. Yeah. It's, it's insane. It's absurd. I also always think about living in that period of time, like 63, JFK's assassination, and then 68, you have King and Bobby Kennedy. I mean, I, I can I would imagine. I never trust anything, anything again. If I lived through that, I would never, like. No lies wo- about Vietnam. No wonder we end up with like Ronald Reagan. Like, his, everybody else is just like, fuck this. Yeah, this yeah. is fucking bullshit. <laughs> this place is a nightmare. Yeah. Give you that happy yeah. talk actor guy. Yeah. He'll yeah. tell me it's going to be okay. Or just they sat it out. I mean, it's just, it, it's insane to me that that, that happened. And, um, and eerie that it happened. And like, yeah, people are right to ask a lot of questions about it. Release the documents. Just release the documents. Well, like, well, they're just giving Alex Jones like 700 more shows. Yeah, like two more Oliver Stone movies and maybe we'll figure it out. <laughs> you know. Um, okay, well, I think we solved that one. Um, see, I did it. Uh, when yeah. we come back, we will have our interview with former Prime Minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd. We're going to talk climate. We're going to talk about China, these scary reports that a big Chinese uh, real estate developer could go under and that could impact the global economy. So... Stick around for all of that. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Packages by Expedia. You were made to be rechargeable. We were made to package flights, hotels, and hammocks for less. Expedia. Made to travel. 
Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. We are thrilled to welcome back to Pod Save the World, uh, the former prime minister of Australia, Kevin Rudd, to the show. Thank you so much for doing it. Great to see you. Good to be with you. Looking forward to our conversation. Uh, so, Prime Minister, I know our producers uh, promised you that we'd spend the bulk of this interview talking about uh, whether or not Scott Morrison pooped his pants at a McDonald's in New South Wales back in 1997. But I was hoping to start by asking you about climate change and the summit that's happening right now, because I believe um, that's important as well. Uh, you have been to one of these big summits. Uh, most of our listeners have not. Can you help them understand what happens behind the scenes and what you hope will come out of COP26, the event that's happening this week? Yeah. Well, thank you to your producers. <laughs> <laughs> they are we texting regard- me like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, uh, we regard uh, all matters concerning McDonald's in Australia as a national security matter. <laughs> yeah. And we're not able to comment further. <laughs> But if you've got some time afterwards, I've got some great stories. Okay, good. Um, look, uh, yeah, I've been to a few conferences of the parties over the years as head of government. In fact, I began at Bali, uh, which is way back in the Mesolithic period, um, um, a couple of years before uh, Copenhagen. And uh, these were the days of the Bush administration when, frankly, the United States was in the same sort of recalcitrant mode that then went into under the Trump presidency. And so my first insight in terms of how you unlock momentum at these conferences is uh, steeped in Bali. And then, of course, what I observed and experienced in Copenhagen after that. I think it's around two or three things. When um, people listening to this podcast uh, try to make sense of Glasgow, uh, you can look at all the, as it were, the public excitement of the external protest movements in and around the Conference of the Parties, tens of thousands of people each legitimately trying to make their point about what needs to be done to save the planet. That's important. It places some pressure on the, on the negotiating process. It's a good thing. But it's not where the actual action is. The second thing to focus on is what actually happens on the conference floor, which is what most people see happening on their screens, which is the formal declaration of national positions. That's underway at the moment. President Biden's spoken, the Australian Prime Minister uh, Morrison has spoken and said nothing. Um, and, um, and, of course, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, has done the same. It's useful to actually get a, a clear idea of what the formal positions are. But then the third element is, uh, as you all know, and this is the critical one, is what happens in the green room, what happens in the negotiating room mm-hmm. among the principal countries. And, uh, and um, certainly having been in Copenhagen when... President Obama arrived, and I'd been urging him privately to get on a plane and get to Copenhagen, uh, was to unlock what was then, frankly, a locked process amongst the principal negotiating states. So it's really the dynamics of what happens in that smaller group, which unlocks the momentum or non-momentum for the rest of the conference. Mm. 
And are you? I'm, we want to get to Australia's pledge, but hearing you say that, I are you concerned as a China watcher? And you and I have you know talked a lot about China and climate change over the last year or two. That the Xi Jinping isn't there uh, because obviously that it was the U.S. and China making an agreement heading into Paris that kind of unlocked the Paris Agreement. Uh, how big a deal is it that he's not there? And what do you what do you attribute that to as a China watcher? Look, I don't uh, overstate the importance of his non-physical attendance. There's a reason for that, um, because it's a Marxist-Leninist system who are absolutely paranoid about the physical health of their leaders. Uh, therefore, uh, when the Chinese would look at um, the normal um, COVID security arrangements in Glasgow, they're likely to freak out mm. uh, using uh, Chinese Politburo standards of how you look after the leadership. I think that would have been the dominant consideration. Secondly, their principal negotiator, Xie Jinhua, and many of us know, and I've known Xie for more than a decade since um, we crossed swords on many occasions back in Copenhagen and have become good friends. Xie has been around long enough in the system to know exactly what his negotiating parameters are. Uh, and he would have had direct exchange with the Chinese leadership before leaving about how far he could go. Um, so I don't have a problem with that score. What I do have a problem with, though, Ben, is, um, frankly, the desultory nature of the Chinese NDC. That's the Nationally Determined Contribution, uh, which, frankly, doesn't move the dial much. Uh, it's simply an aggregation of what China has said so far it's already doing. It's not a reflection of new levels of ambition through until 2030. That's what has me more concerned. Hmm. What about the Australian? Uh, so we, we, we've covered this, uh, our friends over at Irrational Fear podcast in Australia, uh, we helped them promote their billboards with uh, creative <laughs> images of kangaroos with their tails on fire. Burning and kangaroos, I guess yeah. that helped, uh, you know, helped to persuade Scott Morrison to go, but then his, his commitment left a lot to be desired. What, where, where do you see Australia in the, in the equation right now as, as whether or not they're, they're playing a, as constructive a role as they should? Well, Morrison and the Conservatives here um, have been dragged kicking and screaming into a, a minimalist rhetorical commitment to carbon neutrality by 2050. Um, and I think uh, there's a reason why that's occurred. Uh, getting your billboards up in Times Square and the rest of it, uh, frankly, it all plays back into the domestic marketplace here. And a whole bunch of, shall we say, um, socially progressive but uh, financially conservative um, members of Morrison's political party, uh, that affects them, particularly in inner city areas uh, right across Australia. But the second big one, uh, Ben, is this. Uh, Murdoch, uh, who has viciously campaigned against any form of climate action, uh, against my government, um, regarded it as a, a core plank to vote us out of office back into 2013, uh, Murdoch, literally a month ago, has his own Damascus Road conversion, so-called, mm -hmm. uh, whereby in the front of his papers in this country, at least, they are now also in support of carbon neutrality by 2050. That was to give Morrison political cover to move to that position. But on the reality of a roadmap to get to 2050 or a uh, serious and robust commitment for 2030 from Australia, um, uh, we see very little action. So I do fear both at the Conservatives level and certainly the Murdoch level, it's one giant exercise in greenwashing. Hmm. Um, I also saw that Morrison's uh, Conservative Party is starting to push for voter ID laws in Australia. 
Uh, my questions are two part. One, I, I read that and instantly felt anxious that uh, America might be exporting another terrible product to Australia. I'm wondering if, if the Genesis, uh, if they might be linked. And two, what you think the impact might be on the Australian electorate, how this might you know, change voter patterns, et cetera. Yeah, it's a big one here. I mean, there are, uh, I'm a deep fan of the United States, and there are certain things which seriously freak me out as a friend of America as well that you guys get up to. And the, uh, the voter suppression laws, as I would describe them, are uh, part of that. I think we need to understand that the Australian Conservatives, the Republican Party in the United States, um, and um, the British Conservatives at a staff level work really closely, uh, including their, um, their uh, key political and uh, ideological operatives. Mm. So these things are shopped around among them in terms of how you ultimately succeed in getting away with what I think is the, uh, the general political project, which is how do we convince 50% of the country to vote for a set of politicians and policies which are going to damage the interests of working people, working Americans, working Australians, working Brits, and they will use any device known to man, including this one. It's currently before the Australian House of Representatives and the Senate. We have an election due in the first five months of next year, so it's going to be make or break literally in the next couple of weeks, uh, and it really does sit in the balance at the moment with one or two votes in the Senate uh, in terms of whether this thing is going to get passed or not. Jeez. So I wanted to, to also get your expertise on China on a, on a different matter that we, we haven't taken up here because we wanted to have the right uh, voice to, to unpack it a little bit. And I saw your writing about Evergrande. Um, and, and I just, you know, for the, the layman listener here, um, given your vantage point, again, looking at China, working, obviously, leading the Asia society policy, um, how big a deal is this? <laughs> how worried should people be? Um, uh, how should someone who doesn't quite understand what's happening but has seen some headlines about this, uh, how, how are they to make sense of it? Yeah, it's a, a really important question, uh, Ben. There's two elements we should look at. One, what's Xi Jinping doing to the private sector, period? And secondly, what about systemic financial risk with very large real estate and uh, financial conglomerates getting themselves into all sorts of default territory? On the first one, Xi Jinping really since 2017 has been progressively moving the centre of gravity in Chinese domestic economic policy towards the left, that is, away from the market, back towards the party state, across a whole range of policy measures, whether it's Communist Party committees and private firms, the ideological mission of uh, state-owned enterprises, or the new crackdown on Chinese billionaires. So there's a whole, as it were, new ideological push towards the left, which I think has profound consequences in terms of long-term private sector confidence in, in, in China, given that the private sector represents 60% of Chinese GDP, most of China's innovation, most of its tax growth, practically all of its employment growth. Um, so this ideological experiment, which is gaining momentum in China, uh, the question I have analytically is how much will it take off the top of China's normal economic growth rates? So my gut tells me that this is, start, this is going to start to cost in terms of real growth levels for the Chinese economy. At the second level, which is systemic financial risk, most Chinese leaders wake up each morning and have what I've described as their 
Lehman's moment frisson. And that is that look at what happened in the United States in 2008 when uh, Lehman's uh, went down the gurgle. Uh, and then it uh, brought the US financial system to, to its knees. And frankly, the rest of us around the world and spent years, including President Obama and myself in office, uh, trying to hold the whole show together, not just in terms of financial markets, but the real economy. The Chinese have learned from that. So when you see Evergrande, which has got $300 billion in liabilities, which is not small, um, <laughs> then, uh, then uh, the bottom line is, it's um, the Chinese are not going to allow it to default. They're going to not allow it to go bankrupt. I think you're going to have um, an orderly dispersal of its assets to various other entities within the Chinese property and financial system so that the, as it were, the foundations of the overall financial system uh, are not uh, undermined. But at the same time, this continued correction against debt levels in the Chinese property sector will also create new headwinds against China's overall growth levels, given that a huge slice of Chinese GDP growth comes out of the property sector as well. Oof, scary. Yeah, I mean, I get one last thing for me is just, so we've talked climate, we've talked China, uh, we've talked right-wing politics. <laughs> so those are, those are all things that the world is contending with. Uh, looking at Glasgow, um, looking at the U.S.-China relationship, where it is, China has its own preoccupations. What, what, what is your optimism level? Let's just take the climate issue in particular, the capacity of the U.S. and China and other countries to do what's necessary in the coming years here. Look, I'm always a, a glass half full guy, um, uh, although I began to question whether the glass had finally cracked during the Trump administration. <laughs> Us too. Um, and and, uh, and just been pulverized into little silicon chips or something. But the, um, the bottom line is I'm probably about 55% um, on the positive side of ledger. Why do I say that? A, uh, Biden's in office. UNFCCC hasn't been killed. Um, the multilateral process continues. We continue to bend the arc of history towards um, a better climate outcome. And the fact that the United States has um, announced its uh, position for 2050 and 2030, uh, which was unthinkable under a Trump administration, this is pretty important. Obviously, President Biden's run into all this, um, let me put, use the technical term, congressional crap <laughs> um, uh, in trying to get this thing. His package of uh, 1.7 trillion through, which would be a massive injection to the renewable energy industry in, in your country. That's a disappointment, but, you know, as Bismarck said of politics, like making German sausages, never a process to be observed closely. Um, and, uh, and something will come out of this. I think the second one on the China front is um, the Chinese will act and continue to act increasingly decisively as I read carefully the elements of the 14 to five-year plan produced in March this year. And it's not because they love you or they love me or anybody else. They figured out through their own national scientific consensus that unless they do this themselves, they're going to fundamentally undermine their own economic and environmental future and their aspirations to become a global great power by mid-century. The final thing I'd really like to see come out of it, um, Ben, is this. One of the great achievements of um, Obama and the team 
um, in that period of 2014-15 was the establishment of the US-China Climate Working Group. Sounds like a piece of techno talk, but the bottom line is it became a piece of essential machinery in the US-China uh, climate uh, collaborative uh, arrangements, which produced a whole lot of sector-specific work between the two countries and the two systems, uh, which creates the, as it were, the nuts and bolts of bringing down greenhouse gas emissions further, whether it's the uh, energy sector, whether it's the transportation sector, whether it's on methane, whether it's on reforestation or, or deforestation. This sectoral work, if we can breathe a new uh, bunch of oxygen into the lungs of it within that reconstituted um, working group, that will be a good outcome coming out of uh, Glasgow as well. Well, we'll all hope for that. Um, Prime Minister Rudd, thank you so much for, for joining the show. Everyone should check out your books, uh, The PM Years, The Case for Courage. Both are excellent. Uh, and uh, and we've talked about them before on the show. So go back to the back back episodes catalog, to hear more. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Back catalog Thanks is great. So yeah. We whack the Murdochs okay. a bunch too. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah, it's, it's anyway, thank you so much. Case for Courage whacks the Murdochs. So I've got a new one coming out early next year, which is called The Avoidable War. There we go. China States. Uh, so that'll be out in about April. Ooh. So that's why my head's hairs turn white completely, <laughs> as I've been writing it the last six months. Excellent. Well, let's hope we avoid that war. Yeah, I mean, uh, don't, don't want to do that one. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Thanks, guys. Right, good to see you. Have a good. Thanks, to Prime Minister Rudd, for joining the show. Uh, ben, I made the mistake of looking at Twitter. Oh no. Yeah, glance right before the outro, and it seems like people are freaking out. So that sucks. I will say that Cree Deeds lost by how many points in 2009? Like it was double digits, I think, or close to it. And Barack Obama was handily <sighs> reelected, although that was when we didn't quite have this total sociopath running the Republican Party preparing to run for yeah. president again. But um, yeah, it would not be great. You know, we we usually lose these off-year Virginia races. Um, you know, right now it's 58% in, 55-44 Yunkin. That's not good. Mm. You know, my concern is about 2022. It's less than great. Losing yeah. uh, the House I, Senate. I, I, you know, my concern is also that, um, you know, Yunkin, it feels like in in to, to connect it to the world though issues you know like the the guy who is running as the leader of a base of people that are like kind of far right nationalist but throws on a fleece and yep. is a businessman he tuned to the right frequency it's a dangerous to get yeah it's yeah, kind of dangerous yeah. right like they they may have hacked something here that like um I, I, it's not my hot take it's just kind of like that's my hot anxiety. Yeah, it's yeah. hot anxiety. Yeah, yeah, me too. Um, me too. Is, is that this is like a model that can be replicated in congressional races and, and in other countries too, frankly, where what we've seen in the past is like if you have like the completely objectional, you know, nutcase, you know, that's one thing. But, you know, sometimes you get the guy in the fleece. Yeah, sometimes you get the guy in the fleece. Who, by the way, worked at the freaking Carlisle Group? They probably They probably had like a sponsored tent at Davos. Oh, the absolutely. Desert, you know? They're probably giving out yeah, like little They probably have swag. You know, yeah, they probably have merch. Little bone uh, saws. Car Carlisle merch over there. Oh, God. This... Remember when the Carlisle Group was like the, the boogeyman to the Democrats? Yeah. Why uh, was that? Yeah. Our, our like Bush super people. awesome new producer, Haley Muse, is 
like looking at me like wrap it up how old are you guys like oh. uh the car remember tommy remember 29. in the 2003 when the carlisle group was like like the, yeah, mtv like, played videos yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mtv <did play. laughs> all right that's all we got thanks again mr rudd and uh we'll see you next week when uh you know maybe every democrat will be pooping their pants like scott morrison and mcdonald's so or there'll are. be some wonderful Steve Kornacki comeback. Yeah, wrap it up. Yeah, we'll stay helpful. We'll stay helpful. I'm having a By the time this drops, <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm having yeah. a drink tonight. Yeah, I'm that. having a drink either way. <laughs> okay. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.